The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, glory. This is Dudley. Good to be back with you again this month. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Let me mention to you something you, you, you really need to know. Just recently, we had the, the best conference I've been in in years, maybe if not ever. It's called the Epic Conference. It's, the story changes everything. This conference was built around the whole idea of the story of, well, stories, that every story has common characteristics, and the Bible is a story. History is a story, and if we don't know that story, then nothing else really matters. So we told the, the gospel in this, in this form, in this uh, narrative. The teachings were just fabulous, the, just the best. So uh, we're offering that to you, and I encourage you to order them, get them, listen to them. So when that offer comes to you, make sure you you get it. You can you can get it by responding to the mail piece that we've sent, or you can uh, call the office. In fact, that probably is the most sure way you can do it. Or go online and order it offline. CharismaVentures.com. If you haven't already installed the app, the Kerygma Ventures app, you need to do that. And that way you you can go directly and get any of the resources that we have, and you can get them straight off that app. And uh, I recommend you do that. Okay. Well, it's summertime here, and we're in the middle of a lot of stuff going on. And I wish I had time to tell you all about it, the... Uh, Leadership expedition is about to begin, and we'll have a bunch of men out at the ranch learning what it means to be leaders. I uh, ho- hope you'll be praying for those guys. Let's get started. I, I want to talk to you about where we are, where we are as people, where we are as a nation, where we are as a church. And if I had a title, if I was going to put a title, I guess I'll have to so at some point. I would call it, uh, how did we get here and what can we do? We're dizzy trying to figure out what's happened and how fast it's occurred. I continue to run into folks, just cannot believe we're dealing with the issues we're dealing with. Just a few years ago, we were celebrating in this country the diversity of opinion and, and boasting that sincere discussion and debate were privileges in a nation where liberty is prized. Now, there's an atmosphere of shock For instance, there's a host of sincere, morality-loving citizens who are in a serious quandary as to the choices we have for president this year. We have two people who seem to treat truth as a primitive myth, lies, exaggerations, spin, insinuations, false accusations, or daily fare. Even the whole realm of politics seems to have created its own world where moral values have been excluded. Then you add to that the insanity of the current discussions about gender identity and which bathrooms and showers our children must share. And just recently, the definition of marriage has been co-opted by the federal government. and, And as we speak, the the liberty of conscience is under moral threat. Religious liberty is is being threatened as never before in this nation. I mean, a nation that once 
prize the value of freedom from oppression has become oppressive toward all those who dare challenge the gods of secular religion. Christians, in particular, seem perplexed as to what to do. And the question is, will God help us? Is he interested? Have we gone too far? What about revival? Can, can we have a revival? Before we, we go any further, I want to read you a text that I will be referring to during this whole time, but I won't take the time to exegete the whole part, but I want you to keep it in your mind as, as we talk this time. This is uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. As, as he's closing out this fabulous letter that he's wrote to the church at Ephesus, Paul deals with the warfare the inevitable warfare that a Christian faces. says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand and in the evil day, having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, or to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There is a war going on. Some deny that it's going on, but it is. And those who are unaware of it usually get beaten up and lose lose in the battle. We need to know what, what the nature of it is and, and what we're to do in the middle of it. Uh, this whole thing about revival, sometimes we speak of revival uh, as if it were some kind of magic thing that would immediately snatch us out of the doldrums of wherever we are and, and fix everything. In fact, it's popular among concerned Christians to reference Second Chronicles 7.14, Many of you will know that. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a great, great text, as are all texts in Scripture. But it should be noted that this promise was made to a covenant people, Israel, and it related to the temple that Solomon had built. Uh, Solomon had built this fabulous temple, and uh, as a result of it, God had said to them, when you, 
when you go out and forget my ways and you start uh, living on your own way, there will be discipline. And and then if you will come back here at this place where I meet you and you will repent of your sins and turn from your wicked ways, I'll heal your land. So it was written to a covenant people at a specific time. And though it does not apply directly to the United States because we're not a covenant people, uh, there it does reveal the nature of God who does not delight in the affliction of his people, but wants to heal and forgive the land. But make no mistake, this does not directly refer to the United States in particular. If we're going to follow true hermeneutics, that is the way you interpret scripture, the progressive revelation from Old Testament through the New Testament then this would equate to the present church, the body of Christ throughout the world. That's the my people of this promise. You see, we no longer have to travel to a physical temple to make such a prayer of repentance. We who are members of his body make up the temple. He lives in us and among us. We have a new covenant and we are a new people. So, Let's talk about this new people. Let's go back and look at Adam, when God first put a people on the earth. Like Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden to keep it and work it, Israel later was chosen to be a worshiping community, working in a bigger garden, the bigger garden of the world, to keep it and make it productive. God chose Israel to you to be the instrument through which he would infect the world. Like Adam, Israel failed in that assignment. But the God who started this all didn't give up. Later, he himself became another Adam and accomplished what neither the first Adam nor Israel could do. Jesus started with a relatively small garden, 12 men, and he kept them. You might remember that he uses that language when he prays in John 17, and he's talking to the Father, and he said, those that were yours you gave to me, and I have kept them in your name. That's a garden word. Same kind of word Adam was told to do, to keep the garden, to protect it from Uh, outside forces from evil influences and to work it, to subdue it, to develop it. And that's what Adam was supposed to do and failed and Israel was supposed to do and failed. But when the last Adam came along, he started with that garden of 12 and he was able to say just before his death, I have done what you've told me to do, Father. I've done the assignment. I've kept this garden. He trained them to be keepers of their own gardens and to reproduce, to infect the whole world. Just like he had told Adam and Eve to reproduce physically, biologically. He told the disciples that he, that he called to himself to reproduce and infect the whole world. That body of believers who represent the final Adam, that's us. We've been reconciled. We've been reconciled to intimate partnership with God. And not only do we have the privilege of walking in partnership with him, but he's given us adequate authority and power 
to expand our well-kept gardens to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the point. If the garden, the earth, is overrun with briars, and if the serpent is running roughshod over the garden, unhindered from deceiving the inhabitants, then the present church must bear the, some blame. You see, it was to us that he gave the garden. Uh, yeah, we're to start with our own, our own lives, our own families, our own communities, but, but we have been given what Jesus paid for. He bought and paid for the whole earth, and he has given it to our care to keep it, to work it, to subdue it, to, to make it produce according to his kingdom. Remember, Adam was given authority over all the creatures in the garden. That means when the serpent came slithering up, Adam had authority over him, but he didn't use it. And as a result, the serpent deceived Eve and Adam fell for it and the whole world was plunged into alienation from God because of it. Likewise, the body of Christ has been given the same authority and power that Jesus used on the earth. So the problem today is not that the church is weak. The problem is that it's absent. It has abandoned its assignment. We've left the garden to the briars and the snakes. That's called apostasy. The word apostasy, two words, ah, negative, post. It means we've left our post. We've bought the lie of the devil that we don't belong in the realm of garden keeping. He's told us that we should be thinking about a future heaven, that garden keeping is dirty and involves working with worldly things. He's indicated that spirituality is too ethereal to be associated with engaging the cultures of the world. Evidently, he's also convinced many that the battle for this life is hopeless. It might as well give up. Evil's too strong. Darkness is too dense. We should only be looking for a future, a battle at Armageddon or something later. Maybe, maybe there's victory in the millennium or surely in heaven. It's sad that some Christians are secretly rejoicing during these days that things are getting worse because they believe that it will usher in the coming of Christ and trigger the escape for them. They get all excited about the prospects of nuclear conflict that will take us all to heaven. I don't believe that is what God had in mind when he gave us the authority of his name, the power of his spirit, and the privilege of being his garden keepers. While we wait and wish for better times or look on with a I told you so attitude, the serpent runs rampant. We lament lost privileges and eroding rights while the murderer inspires the death of millions of innocent babies every year. The thief steals fathers from the home where struggling mothers, struggling single moms try to cope. So 
children have lost their father to an enemy who's stolen them away. The social sciences that in our society appear to be the last word on everything are still waiting to decide if children do better with a mom or a dad or if that's an outdated model. I can go ahead and tell you, you can save your weight. It's not an outdated model. That was the creator's design. It's only one that really does work. Our schools have been infested with false assumptions regarding origins, purpose, identity. The serpent has injected his venom into communication and inspired his own language that makes discussing real issues politically incorrect. So that's the condition of the garden when the church backs away, when the church goes to sleep, when the church abandons its post and considers its job to be more spiritual than than real. <laughs> Defining spirituality in some way it's not supposed to be. This craziness that we're in, this deterioration that we are experiencing does seem to have happened quickly. I agree. I find myself going, are we talking about this? Have have we already agreed that same-sex marriage is the norm? Are, are, Are we saying that there is no such thing as gender, that you, you can determine it yourself and, and it can go back and forth? Are, are we really talking about that as a people? But the truth is, it's been going on for a long time. That is the craziness. We have enjoyed the fruits of liberty but ignored its true nature. We've been blessed by the works of our forebears who understood that corporate liberty is a fruit of individual freedom. The truth is that spiritually oppressed people cannot produce nor sustain politically free people. Guilt, shame, and fear cripple people beyond the capacity to build for the sake of others. When the good news of forgiveness and love and reconciliation is assumed or ignored, society rots. No matter how good the government structure you can put in place, humans were not designed to live apart from the conscious presence of God. Life simply will not work as it was designed when separated from divine design. The day that we assume that the privileges of liberty can be enjoyed without a battle with the oppressor, that's the day liberty begins to erode. So it's no wonder that the enemy has convinced us that there is no real spiritual battle. The battles are political or military or, or ideological, but not spiritual. The truth is, The real battle is spiritual. So what does it look like? What does that battle look like? Well, actually, it's a matter of standing in the truth when every voice around you is demanding that you don't. I can say it another way. The one thing the church needs to do, and you and I are the church, is we need to show up. And then when you show up, stand up. And when you stand up, speak up. 
If you don't have any, anything to say, shut up. But we've shut up for too long. And, and when we do speak up, we, we're dealing with, often we're dealing with the wrong issues. Standing is what Paul tells Christians to do. We stand in a victory that was won by Jesus himself. He, he fought our enemy and defeated him. But he's been still left around. He has no authority or power except to deceive. He tells lies, and those who don't know the truth buy into it. And when they buy into deception, they start down a road of destruction and devastation and death. So the battle for us is to stand in the victory and to operate from that stance. You see, we're not trying to do anything to pay the penalty for our transgressions or to live up to a perfect law of righteousness. We we know that that achievement is impossible for us. Jesus has already done that for us. And he now gives us the privilege of enforcing that victory wherever we encounter the liar, the murderer, the oppressor, and the accuser. Jesus himself has qualified us. He called us, anointed us, commissioned us to be his representatives on the earth to spread his liberty one garden at a time. The enemy hates everything God loves. He delights in our pain. Since the life and actions of Jesus on earth is a central event in history, and since it is the only power of true salvation, we can be sure that the devil hates the gospel. In any battle, you try to take out the enemy's big gun. You can be sure the devil knows that the big gun for the church is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It has the power of transformation. It It has the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is the power of light over darkness. It's the power of life over death. And when it is told, when the gospel is preached and lived, it inevitably makes a difference. It cannot be stopped. It it has God's own uh, God's own hand upon it. It has God's own character behind it. Since the enemy could not prevent the redemptive work of God in our behalf. He does all he can to delude it, distract from it, minimize it, marginalize it, and deny its power. His propaganda says that the story of the cross is all about heaven someday. It also says it's only for a a limited culture, that, that every society has its own gods and doesn't need to be proselyted by Christians, Jews, have their own way. Muslims have their own way. Eastern religions have their own way. And, and we shouldn't be trying to change, we shouldn't be trying to change people. We should leave everybody alone because they, they have their own God and that's fine. Well, it's not fine because Jesus is the only one who died to forgive sin. He is the only one who was raised from the dead. He's the only one who rules over all. He's the only mediator between God and man. Maybe the most effective idea that the enemy puts forth is that God and man 
can negotiate what will work in their relationship. The big issue for man-made religion is the cost of real salvation and who will pay. The idea that I'm related to God and God is looking at me and looking at my qualifications and, 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 and I'm saying, what will it take to please you or appease you? What, what, what will it cost me? And God is saying, well, here's what I pay and here's what you pay and we can reach some negotiable difference. That's, that's man-made religion. Uh, the, this doctrine of the enemy has, span, has spawned thousands of religions as human beings in every era have tried to figure out what sacrifice is enough to please or appease God. As long as this is the issue in men's minds, the good news of the gospel is ignored or redefined as a way it's redefined as a way that humans can finally satisfy God. The liberating truth is that God has taken the initiative and done for mankind what was needed for reconciliation. He came as us to live as us and die for us so that with him we could defeat death and in him sit in the heavenly place of final acceptance. The story is about what he has done, not what we need to do. Once you hear what he has done, you will want to trust him instead of yourself. It changes everything. If we don't stand here as my people, the people of God, if we don't stand here in this truth of the gospel, we have no hope of experiencing personal freedom or a building for corporate liberty. To turn from our wicked ways means turning to the centrality of the gospel. It will include accepting, one, uh, accepting our role as God's appointed Adams. We are Adams and Eves in the garden we live in. It will include embracing fellow believers as brothers and sisters in love and patience. It will mean caring for God's creation and discovering how to keep it and work our garden. There's no time to stand around blaming other entities like our government that's out of control. It's our garden that's overgrown. We were given the job to keep it and to work it. We were given the authority we were given the power. It's ours. We've been given adequate resources to, to live as partners with God. Some are putting all of their hope this year on what happens in this November. I want to remind you that it took a while for the rot to get so prevalent, the deterioration to get so bad. It might take a while for our gardens to get productive, but we have time to do God's will. And we have the privilege of working with him in the process. What a statement that is. Salvation includes not just going to heaven, not just having your sins forgiven and having your conscience cleared, all of that, but it includes right now being a partner with God on the earth. He is the 
not-so-silent partner. Invisible to our naked eye, but more real than what we can see and touch. He has given us the privilege of being partners with him. That is salvation. We're not victims of the world. We're not victims of Satan. We're not victims of sin. We're not victims of anything. We're victors. Not because we've done anything or can do anything, but because Jesus, our Lord, our captain, has done what needed to be done and has basically said, I want you now to take this victory and and apply it throughout all the world. I want you to I want you to to face the lies that societies live under and give them truth. I, I want you to face the darkness that people live in and give them light. I want you to face the, the death and sickness that people live in and, and give them the health of God's, of being reconciled to God. You see, God hasn't given up, and neither have we. We shall not, will not give up. With the victorious Lord as our partner, our support, the light will dispel darkness. Love will conquer all. God's plan for global glory is not dependent upon what this nation does this year. The eternal kingdom that reigns supreme will continue its expansion until his purpose is fully accomplished. There's so many who are worried about decisions we make today of whether or not it'll be proven that we'll be on the right side of history. I'm not so worried about being on the right side of what this culture calls history as being on the right side of God's purpose and God's narrative. So is there hope? Yes, there's hope. Uh, If we're only concerned about the preservation of America as we have known it, then our hope is in the wrong thing. But if our hope is in what God has done through Jesus Christ, the, the release of, of the power, the life that he gave after he came out of the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and released his spirit upon us, that is stronger than any ideology of any people anywhere. And that power must be released. It must be embraced. It must be released and lived out. So how can we do it? Well, we each must own his or her own garden, my own life, my own mind, my, my own concepts of truth, my own, my own understanding of God and salvation and where, who I am in relationship to him. I, I must own that. I must believe the truth as God has revealed it in the gospel through Jesus Christ. I I must take my own body, my own giftings, my own skills, my own influences, my own relationships, and I must make sure that I am keeping them, working them, managing them according to the truth of the gospel, to the values that are revealed in the gospel, and according to the Spirit who guides me. I, I must realize that I have responsibility in my community in my city, in my county, in my state. Uh, I, I, I must understand that I have responsibility where I work. I may not be the boss there, but I have responsibility where I am to do my work 
for the glory of God and to not fall prey to the various ethics and moralities that are developed sometimes in business or in the marketplace. But as I stand up in my garden and say, this is the garden God has given to me. The enemy will not rule here as long as I have the name of Jesus. Weakness will not stay here as long as the Holy Spirit empowers me. And as we embrace this privilege of managing the earth under God's control, things can begin to change around us. Is it going to change by next week? Maybe not. Next year? Don't know. Ten years? Not sure. But change? It will. Because... When the word of God goes forth, it will not return without accomplishing what God sent it out to do. And when I am living by the word, as well as speaking forth the word, it's an unstoppable force. And if some of us should get together and help each other with our gardens, that would be called a faith community. And that faith community would be stronger still, and it would be a force that makes a difference in the world. It would make a difference in business and in the school and everywhere else. The main thing is we need to acknowledge our apostasy. We left our post. And when we did, the briars and the snakes took over the garden. Our tendency now is to wring our hands as we look out over an overgrown garden out of control and want to blame somebody other than ourselves. God does not get any pleasure out of us standing around moping about it, but the very fact that he is revealing it to us should energize us to say, God, thanks. Thank you so much for showing us what can be done. And now, as a partner with you, we'll get after doing it. How do we get here? Well, we got here by leaving the garden unattended. What can we do? We start tending the garden. And as we do, we can trust God to cause his work in us to flourish. For we're working in partnership with the one who rules it all. Father, I pray that you would cause hope to rise up in the heart of all of your people. We do want you to heal the land, not just the land of America but we would like for you to include that. We'd like for you to heal starting with our land, heal our garden, heal the land that I till, heal the land where I have influence. And I want to repent and turn. I want to turn to the centrality of the gospel to believe what you say is true, regardless of what I'm being told otherwise. I want to hold on to to the faith that you have revealed in Christ Jesus. I thank you that our feet stand now on blood-purchased soil, that we partners with you because you have already bought and paid for what you've given us to manage. And so we do repent. We turn from man-made religion. We turn from 
our dependence upon ourselves and a dependence upon government to do things for us and and other people to take care of us we 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 turn from that and we turn to you and to your word i pray that you would cause every person listening to know how to apply that to their lives today and i i have this great confidence father that all we have to do is ask you and you'll tell us i know that you would not assign us something and not be a good partner and tell us what we need to know when we need to know it. So thank you for the privilege of being your people in this day. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www.kerygmaventures.com. That's K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com.